Dr. Tom King is going to minister the word to us this evening. And I wanted to find a song that fit, and this is the one I think that fits best. Now, I don't know how many people know this, though. If you've been around the church a long time, uh, you'll know it. If you haven't, this will be new. So grab the hymnal that's close by you and turn to hymn number 225. The words will be on the screen if you don't need it. Amen. Remain standing for the reading of the scripture. Sorry, surprised you. Scripture reading is taken from Leviticus 16, verses 29 to 34. And this shall be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month. You shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall also make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. And just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. You may be seated. As a student of the Old Testament, I have a special interest in Jewish tradition. Just last month, the Jewish High Holy Days were celebrated. September 30th was Rosh Hashanah, introducing the Jewish New Year, and October 9th was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the 10-day period between those two holidays constitute the High Holy Days. Now, my greatest interest lies in the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. I'm actually not very familiar with modern-day celebrations of Yom Kippur. I've spent most of my time studying the ancient Day of Atonement recorded in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, a few years ago, I read an insightful newspaper article about some modern practices surrounding Yom Kippur. The article spoke of rabbis who were trying new and different activities in order to help their congregations to embrace the meaning of the ancient Day of Atonement. Along with the traditional activities of fasting and reflection and prayers, some additional practices were introduced. The focus, of course, is on forgiveness of sin and the elimination of sin from the community. So one rabbi directed worshipers to write their sins on a piece of paper and then they all participated in a ceremony in which those papers were burned. Another congregation was directed to write down their sins and throw the papers into a river. 
Another rabbi had worshipers read aloud newspaper articles about poverty and oppression with the intent of confessing such evils and symbolically removing them from the community. Another rabbi led worshipers in tying a crimson string around their wrists as a reminder of their commitment to live righteous and holy lives before God. And my favorite is the rabbi who placed two bowls of water before his congregation. One was salt water and one was fresh. And he had the worshipers write their sins on paper using dissolvable ink. And when they dipped their papers into the salt water, their sins disappeared. And then they washed their hands in the fresh water. These modern concerns are actually quite consistent with the Old Testament Day of Atonement, which served to cleanse the community of Israel from their sins and impurities and secure atonement in relationship to God. This ancient ceremony in the Old Testament held on the Day of Atonement may seem irrelevant to those of us in the 21st century, New Testament Christians as we call ourselves, and yet in truth, this ancient ceremony provides a foundational understanding for the fulfillment of salvation which comes in Jesus Christ. In our age of advanced technology and information, there's little room for elaborate ceremonies full of mystery and symbolism. Rituals which evoke feelings of awe and wonder and fear are often rejected as superstitious or considered the product of unrestrained emotion. We normally practice only a few meaningful ceremonies in our life, such as weddings and funerals and some religious rites, like partaking of the Lord's Supper at communion. But for most of us, there's nothing like the grand rituals found in documents describing ancient religious practices. So I invite us to suspend our 21st century scientific information mindset and explore for a moment the ancient Hebrew Day of Atonement. As described in Leviticus chapter 16, the day-long ceremony was held once a year in ancient Israel. Its purpose was to make atonement between God and his people. This atonement involved purification from sin and a commitment to life which made possible right and loving relationships. Now there are a number of meaningful aspects of this day-long ceremony, but I want to focus on one central feature the portion of the ceremony which took place inside the Holy of Holies, inside the temple. For the faithful Hebrew of ancient times, the Holy of Holies would be considered the most revered location on the planet. It was inaccessible, hidden behind a great veil or curtain. No human was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies except the high priest and he only one time each year. On the Day of Atonement, the priest entered through the veil with a fire pan of hot coals and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense. And the priest would put the incense on the hot coals and create a cloud of thick, sweet smoke 
in the Holy of Holies. And the smoke served to shield the priest's eyes from seeing the presence of God. For it was believed that no one could look upon the glory of God and live. So when the room was prepared and the smoke had filled the Holy of Holies, God, the creator of the universe, would appear above the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, that lid which is called the mercy seat. Later in the ceremony, the priest would slaughter a goat outside of the temple. The goat was selected as a sin offering on behalf of the people. The priest took the blood from that goat inside the Holy of Holies and splattered the blood on the mercy seat, which appeared just below the presence of God in the midst of the cloud of smoke. Now this act represented the realization of two significant aspects of atonement. First, the blood from the goat served to purge human sin and impurity and the effects of sin from the place of God's presence. Consequently, from above the mercy seat, the forgiveness of God was secured for the sins of the people. Secondly, the sacrifice served as an offering of life to God. Thus, once a year, the hidden presence of God was encountered in a cloud of smoke behind the veil in the Holy of Holies inside the temple. And at that time, forgiveness was granted from above the mercy seat and an offering of life was presented to God, and thereby atonement was secured for the children of Israel. Now we believe that Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of God's revelation, and that Jesus is the instrument of our salvation. So the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ pre present for us the fulfillment of the intent and meaning of this ancient day of atonement described in Leviticus 16. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul makes the argument that all of the various attempts to attain the righteousness of God have failed. He describes the actions of both Gentiles and Jews as falling short. And after a lengthy exposition of all these failures, Paul finally reveals how indeed the righteousness of God is truly made manifest. He explains the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. 
for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul explains that believers are justified through redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That's the New American Standard, Romans 3.25. This phrase, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, draws heavily on Paul's knowledge of the temple rites and the meaning of atonement as expressed in the Old Testament. The key to understanding this phrase is in the term which the New American Standard translated propitiation. The Greek word is hilasterion. It's been variously translated as sin offering, expiation, propitiation, and offering of atonement. But if you track this word in the Bible, a different translation is suggested. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this term appears numerous times, and in every case, it refers to the mercy seat, that lid on the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. Now this word appears in the New Testament in a variety of different grammatical forms, but the particular form that we find it in Romans 3.25 appears one other time in the New Testament, and again it clearly refers to the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. So the way in which this particular word is used throughout the Bible suggests that it should be translated mercy seat. As if Paul is calling Jesus God's mercy seat. At first it seems odd that Paul would refer to Christ as a piece of furniture, the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. But the surrounding sentence seems to affirm this very translation. Notice Romans 3.25 also reads, In his blood, recalling the priest would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, this phrase gives added meaning to calling Jesus a mercy seat. But most convincing is the phrase before hilasterion, whom God displayed publicly. The great irony here is the mercy seat is never displayed publicly. It's hidden behind the veil in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, inaccessible to all except the high priest and him only once a year. Paul is making a dramatic statement, claiming that in Christ, the mercy seat of God, the place of God's presence, the place where forgiveness is secured is now displayed publicly, accessible to all at any time. No longer is God or God's forgiveness hidden behind smoke and veils and in temples. No longer is an audience with God restricted to one person one time a year. In Christ, God's presence and the grace of God's forgiveness are made public and available to all, anytime, any place. Amen. 
The Gospel of Luke pictures this proclamation with its description of the crucifixion. You recall, Luke records as Christ hung on the cross that the great veil of the temple which hides the mercy seat of God was dramatically torn in two proclaiming that in Christ the mercy seat of God is now exposed to the world. Jesus is God's mercy seat, the place of God's presence, the place where our forgiveness is secured, now available to all at any time. The second aspect of the meaning of the Day of Atonement ceremony is also fulfilled in Christ. That is, the act of presenting an offering of life to God. Recall in the ancient ceremony, the worshiper offered blood to God through the action of the high priest in the Holy of Holies. A little verse in Leviticus 17, following the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, makes it clear that in relation to atonement, blood stands for life, not death. Leviticus 17:11 The life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Thus the blood sacrifice offered in the Holy of Holies represented offering life to God. The practical application of this act was that the worshiper was then supposed to live the rest of that year as a servant dedicated to God. The problem was too many people simply behaved as though performing the ritual was enough to please God. They felt if they just went through the motions of the ceremony, that was enough to atone for their sin. As if the sacrifice were a substitute in their place. But the prophets make it clear, this is not substitutionary atonement. The worshiper represented in the goat's blood was actually expected to live for God, him or herself. Not a substitutionary death, but a representative life dedicated to God. I'm told there was a time, perhaps it's still the case, when our Catholic brothers and sisters were not allowed to eat beef on Fridays. I read of a Protestant who moved into such a Catholic neighborhood. And every Friday, this Protestant would barbecue a thick, juicy steak, and the aroma would fill the neighborhood. And when his Catholic neighbors could stand it no longer, through great persuasion, they convinced him to become Catholic. <laughs> and at his baptism, the priest pronounced, you were born a Protestant, you were raised a Protestant, and now you're a Catholic. The next Friday... The new convert was back barbecuing a thick, juicy steak, and his frustrated neighbors overheard him saying as he sprinkled water on the steak, you were born a steer, you were raised a steer, and now you're a fish. <laughs> now some of you know at my house that story goes, you were born a steer, you were raised a steer, and now you're tofu. Now we all know it doesn't work that way. 
Clearly, words don't turn steak into tofu, nor does water turn steak into fish, nor does the ritual of baptism alone make one Catholic. And in the same way, the mere ceremony of the Day of Atonement did not make Israel suddenly pleasing to God. The prophets of the Old Testament made this clear as they pronounced God's judgment against those who offered sacrifices but lived in ways contrary to God's direction. Allow me to share just a sample of such judgment from the book of Amos, chapter 5, verse 21. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Though you offer up to me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I won't even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. For truly fulfilling the intent of the Day of Atonement ritual, the children of Israel were called to offer their everyday living to God. The blood sacrifice was representative of living in obedience all through the year. The testimony of the Gospels is that Jesus fulfilled this intent perfectly. Jesus lived all his life as an obedient servant to God. He was even killed in his commitment to doing God's will. Jesus literally lived out the Day of Atonement, offering his life to God in daily obedience and literal surrender through death. And as followers of Christ, he calls us to pick up our cross and follow him. We need not sprinkle blood's goat on an altar. Oops, goat's blood on an altar. But we seek God's forgiveness, offering ourselves as God's servants in life. So this ancient day of atonement becomes the reality of a Christian's commitment in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul uses the metaphor of sacrifice to call believers to this very commitment. Drawing on the imagery of the sacrificial system, applying the prophetic emphasis of living daily for God, Paul calls believers to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Romans 12.1 We're called to offer living sacrifices, dead to selfish concerns, dead to evil temptations, but alive and dedicated to serving God daily. Such service to God can be reflected in everyday words, attitudes, and actions. In the rest of the passage in Romans 12, Paul describes a few examples of what it means to function as living sacrifices. Picking it up at verse 9 of Romans 12. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. 
not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil. Respect what's right in the sight of all. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all. Never take your own revenge but leave room for the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. In so doing, you'll heap burning coals upon his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The Christian life doesn't necessarily call us to become national heroes. Unless, of course, we recognize simple acts of kindness and love on a daily basis as heroic, and perhaps we should. To come home after a difficult and maddening workday and determine to express joy and love to waiting family members. To share time and food at the end of the month when the checkbook is empty with those who are lonely and hungry and have no checkbook. To open up home and resources to those who have no bed. I continue to be inspired by my older brother. His name is Tim. He consistently gives of himself to high school students at risk. I had enough trauma trying to raise my own three lovely girls with whom I had the opportunity to share my values and beliefs from the day they were born. And I can't imagine taking in teenagers who have been abused and neglected and filled with negative models of value and belief, and yet he would take them in because they needed care and a home. Tim took them in despite the tremendous strain and drain it placed on his own family resources. And today he invests himself in trying to provide for the education of such needy teens in a time when charter schools are focusing on talented and gifted programs, Tim established a charter school aimed at dropouts and troubled youth who rarely make it through the traditional public school system. He's one of my heroes. There are other inspiring models of living sacrifices in our own community, in our own midst. Those who share their time and resources with others who are always present with a word of comfort, a touch of love in a time of crisis, those who give a smile and a warm touch, communicating the inspiration of encouragement. Offering living sacrifices simply requires the discipline to daily think and speak and act in ways which communicate care and love in the name and spirit of Jesus Christ. So in the spirit of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, in light of its great fulfillment in Jesus Christ, let's take on the commitment of ridding our community of sin, thanks to God's gracious forgiveness in Christ, 
and let us take on the discipline of offering ourselves daily as living sacrifices for God. It's not our tradition to write sins on paper and burn them or tie a crimson string around our wrists, but it is our practice to gather around the altar when the Spirit draws. We don't bring the blood of bulls or goats. We actually bring our lives in commitment to God. If the Lord is calling you to a renewed commitment of offering your life daily to God, the altar is here, and Christ, our mercy seat, awaits. Let us commit ourselves to becoming living sacrifices for God. Our Lord, receive the offering of our lives and fill them, we pray, with the Spirit of Christ, that we might truly live the Day of Atonement to your glory. In the name of Christ. Amen. We're dismissed.